This is Leaving Laodicea, the online podcast of Steve McCraney. I'm glad you're here. Stay tuned, because we've got some exciting things in store for you. Hang tight. You can't handle the truth. But listen, before we begin, I need to share something with you. We've been going through talking about the spiritual gifts. And if you're not careful, these sermons, these messages, looking at God's Word can be kind of a mental exercise, like a theology class, where we go through and we try to determine what the Greek words say and what they mean. And so we walk out of here with a whole bunch of head knowledge, but nothing changed. The point of All that we're studying right now is for you and I to be able to realize that God is bigger than we think He is. God's bigger than the box that we put Him in. God is insurmountable. Either His Word is true or it's not true. And if it's true, then it's our job and our calling to be able to believe His Word based on faith. Because everything in the Christian life moves according to faith. So for us to hear the words and yet not believe what they say, to understand the nuances of some of the Greek, but not trust in them or not think they're to be appropriated in our life is missing the entire point completely. And so today, I want to move away from theology a little bit, and I want you to seriously ask yourself the question, do you believe God's Word? Do you believe all of God's Word? Do you believe even parts of God's Word that you can't see, that you've never experienced, that maybe, maybe His kingdom is bigger than we can imagine, and maybe the things that He wants to do for us are things that we can't even conceive. And I'm reminded, of course, of Ephesians chapter 3, verse number 20 and 21, which is this amazing doxology that Paul gives right after he talks about why we were created and how He's going to show us off to the demonic realm and stuff of that nature. And Here's what he says. Now to him, to Christ, who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power of the Holy Spirit that works in us. To him, Paul says, be glory in all the church, including this one, by Jesus Christ to all generations, not just the first generation, forever and ever Amen. Hold on to that verse as we take a look at some of the stuff we're going to talk about today. And I thank God, if you allow Him, will just let you see how truly powerful He is. Amen? Let me pray. Father, thank You for Your Word and Your truth. And for all the things that we believe, Lord, thank You for that. And Lord, for the things that we struggle with in our belief. Not your sovereignty and your goodness and and our salvation, but just whether you're going to take care of our needs today and tomorrow. Whether your forgiveness is forever. Whether the gifts it talks about in the church that belong to each of us are real and functioning today. Even Even if my eyes and my experience speak otherwise. 
Lord, would you teach us what faith is all about? And, and not just saving faith, but just living faith, abiding faith, resting faith. And Lord, would you, would you give us strength today to realize how truly big and powerful and awesome you are and what it truly means to have you living in us in the person of the Holy Spirit. And Father, I ask you, as I always do, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, will he take authority over Satan and his demons and bind and rebuke and cast them out from our gathering right now? And we're asking you, Holy Spirit, to, to not just live in us, but to fill us to the point of overflowing. And Lord, everything that happens today, I pray it just brings you glory. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. Many years ago, I read a parable by a man named Soren Kierkegaard, uh, who was a philosopher. And I shared this with you a couple years ago, and it's always made a profound impact on me, especially when I view the scriptures and I view my experience and probably your experience in church. And he tells this story about a bunch of geese that come to a church service. And they waddle in and they sit in their pews and the, the geese pastor gets up there and preaches this message to them how they can soar like eagles on eagles' wings, how they can fly and how powerful you know, they are because Christ lives in them. And all the geese just get all excited. They're flapping their wings and they're, they're you know, rejoicing in all of that. And as soon as the sermon is over, they waddle on out of the church, never ever to fly in the air. It's like they come to church and hear something they don't believe. They, 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 they feel good about something that, that somebody says in the Scripture happened to somebody way back when, but it's certainly not going to happen to them, and certainly not now. And their faith is just never manifested in real life. The, the point of the Christian life is you and I have yielded ourselves to Christ, and He has come to live within us. I mean, think about that. God Himself, in the person of the Holy Spirit, decides to live in you and live in me. God Himself, not just the power of God or not just the grace of God or some aspect of God, but God Himself lives within us. And because of that, greater is He living in us than anything the world can throw at us. Because of that, He's transported us out of this earthly kingdom and all its rules and put us in the kingdom of His Son, the kingdom of heaven, where the rules are totally different. Someone comes up and smacks you on the one cheek. In this world, we hit them back harder, right? In the kingdom of God, we turn to them the other because my defender is God. I don't have to defend myself. In this world, I hoard everything I have because I can't trust God's sovereignty to take care of my needs. In the kingdom of heaven, you give everything away. And God says he provides our daily needs. We modeled that for 40 years in the wilderness where God provided manna for his people, yet he still required them to go out and pick it up. Do you remember? There were rules involved. In the king in this kingdom, Somebody says something bad about us, and we cut off fellowship with them. We have nothing to do with our enemies because our enemies are hurtful. And in the kingdom of God, we're to love our enemies. We're to do good to our enemies. And that's the kingdom in which we live in. The kingdom of this world says that there are certain laws that govern relational experiences that we have. But in the kingdom of God, the laws that govern how we live are found in the Scripture. They're found in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed is the humble. Blessed are the meek. Not the powerful and the one to exalt their authority over somebody else. The one that wants to be greatest among you is last, not first. Well, that doesn't work with us when somebody cuts us off in traffic or cuts in front of us in front of a line. We get angry, don't we? We have our rights. 
But in the kingdom of God, things are different. We, we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we read about spiritual gifts that he's given to us, and, and we determine because our experience speaks differently that somehow these don't apply to us, that somehow these aren't supposed to be in here, that, that somehow these only manifested themselves during, for the early church and not for us today. And, and in doing so, we're basically saying what God has written here is wrong. Because nowhere in the scripture does it say that any of these things that are promised to the believers then are not promised to us. We have to deduct that from some sort of theological mumbo-jumbo to try to justify our lack of adherence to these. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that you were gen when you were Gentiles carried away by these dumb idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus a curse, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit, the quickening that takes place in us. Then he talks about these gifts. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but the same God who works all in all. F Spirit. Um, Jesus and God the Father. Verse 7, the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. Now that's either true or false. You either believe what it says or you don't believe. It says that the expression, the manifestation, the revealing of the Spirit is given to each one that belongs to Christ for the benefit of somebody else. That means that you, if you believe this verse, have this Holy Spirit living in you who wants to express or manifest himself through you for the benefit of lost people, for the benefit of other people, for, for the benefit of all. We either allow him to do that or we don't allow him to do that. We either trust his word or we don't. Okay, Lord, so what is this manifestation of the Spirit? There's diversities of gifts, differences of ministries, diversity of his activities, but you haven't told me what that expression looks like. Okay. Verse number eight, and here's where it gets kind of weird. For to one is given the word of wisdom. The Holy Spirit manifests and expressed himself through some, through a word of wisdom. To another, the word of knowledge through the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. Verse nine, to another, gifts of healings. Now I'm getting scared by the same Spirit. To another, verse 10, working of miracles. Now it even gets more freaky to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But one in the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one, including you, individually as he wills. Now, this is either true or it's not, irrespective of our experience, irrespective of our fear of these things. So I've been sharing with you since we started this study um, on these spiritual gifts. The primary point is this. Everything boils down to faith. In order for you to function in your gifts, gifts that it says he's given to each one for the benefit of all, gifts it, said, it says that he distributed to each one individually as God desires. God distributed to Karen whatever gifts Karen has to her because he wanted her to have those gifts. That was his desire. Same thing for Tim and Debbie and everyone else in here. We have those gifts. The Spirit says, the Scripture says that we do. What we do with those gifts is how we give God glory. And most of us, 
Most of my life in the church, especially with these strange, non-Western, kind of non-academic and mental gifts that we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, most of us don't exhibit them at all. And so therefore the church is handicapped. Therefore the church is not making a profound impact in the life of our culture, and the life of our nation. Therefore church becomes something we just do, that we just kind of come like club membership and we sing a couple songs and we have a, you know, a chicken dinner and we hear an encouraging message or, or, and then we go on our separate way and never think about it until the next time we gather together. And that's not the way God designed us when he took us out of the domain of Satan, domain of darkness, and planted us in the kingdom of the son of his love. In order for you to function in your gifts, you have to believe you actually have them. Actually, you have to believe whether or not the scripture is true. And if it's not true in some areas, how can you trust it to be true in other areas? If it's not true in everything, if it's false in one thing, then your confidence is eroded that it's false in anything. Like, like whether or not Christ's death was sufficient. Like whether or not he is preparing a place for you in heaven. Like whether or not you truly are saved. If you doubt him in one thing, you will have to doubt him in others. But if he's true in all things, then everything we find in here is true, no matter what we experience. You have to believe that you actually have them and God wants to use them in your life for the edification of his church and to bring glory to his name, because that's exactly what the passage says. And it all begins and it all ends with faith. The whole kingdom of God is built on faith. And what is faith? I mean, the English translation of the word faith, if you looked it up in Webster's, for example, it would say this. Faith is complete trust or confidence in something or someone. I have faith that my husband will come home to me tonight. I have complete trust and confidence in that. I have faith that, that the, uh, if when I go to, a red, to the light and the light is green, I have faith that the guys coming this way whose light is red will stop. I have complete trust, otherwise I would never go through an intersection. True? I have faith that the chair that I'm sitting in is going to hold me up, otherwise I wouldn't sit in that chair. I have faith pretty much that tomorrow I'm going to wake up and it's going to be another day, otherwise I'd be frantic about that and try to accomplish more today than I actually did. We have faith in many things. It means complete trust or confidence in something or someone. I have faith in the fidelity of my wife. I have faith in the faithfulness of my God. I have faith in His Word and His truth because He's confirmed it to me a million times. Hasn't He you? He's confirmed it to me, but maybe not these areas because I, I feel kind of uncomfortable with that. The biblical definition of faith, of course, is found in Hebrews 11. And it says, now faith, and the word here is pistis. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Here's what it really means. Now faith, and again, we're going to look at the word in just a second, is the substance. It's that which has its foundation. The Greek word means its basis, that which underlies the apparent. It is the reality, the essence, the confidence of things hoped for. It is, it is everything that supports everything you are and everything you believe. Faith is that substance, that foundation. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. And that word hoped for does not mean like, wow, I really hope I get this for Christmas, but if I don't, it's okay. Hope for is a confident expectation. I know it's going to happen because I know the faithfulness of my God and the truth of his word. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence, 
my conviction, my proof, my certainty of things not seen. Faith means I believe and am convicted and I have certainty of something even though I don't see it. I don't have to see to believe. I just have to have faith and have the Holy Spirit quicken that to me and just trust. I mean, look, do you believe you're going to heaven? Have you seen that? Do you have any proof? Do you have any verifiable, tangible, something that I can understand with my senses? Can you prove to me that you're going to heaven? The answer is no. I simply believe and trust and I have faith. Maybe I've had some sort of emotional, esoteric experience when I received Christ. Maybe he gave me peace or happiness or love or joy or whatever, but I see evidence in my life and I'm more convinced now than I was when I first got saved that my name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life, although I can't prove it to you empirically. It's all based on faith. But no one can shake that faith. You believe that people have the gift of healing today? And the gift of miracles today? Oh, I don't know about that. Do you believe the last 16 verses in the book of Mark should be in your Bible? Or are you believing in the Laodicean church age when they redid the Bibles that they decided they shouldn't because it kind of makes us feel unnerved that, that maybe those don't believe in belong in there? Well, if that's the case, why in the world would the Lord not make that correction for us over the last 2,000 years instead of leading his people astray? Instead, it took us and our great enlightened spiritual fervency, because our culture is really spiritual now, isn't it? To determine that for itself. I mean, I mean, think it through. It's all based on faith. The word pistis in the in the Greek means this. It means to win over or be persuaded, or literally it means a firm persuasion, trust, conviction, or belief in truth, or having been given the ability to believe. You'll read in the in 1 Corinthians, earlier in this book, you'll find out that it says that the, the, the cross of Christ is foolishness. It is moronic to those who are perishing. But to you and I who are being saved, it is the wisdom of God and the power of God. Why? Because God quickened that truth to us. We take a, a, a ridiculous story that God decided to come down and, and become a man through a virgin who gave birth. Really? And she gave birth and he lived an entire, his entire life without ever sinning, without ever losing his, his temper, without ever uh, giving into a lustful thought, without ever lying, without ever defending himself, his entire life to age 30. And then he went around preaching, but he wrote no books, he built no institutions, there's nothing, no picture of him or, or anything like that. And he died on the cross and because one man died on the cross, he took all our sins upon himself so that we just trust in his substitutionary death that my sins will be wiped out, paid in full in God's eyes and I'll be able to go to heaven and spend eternity with him, not just as a servant, but as a, as a heir, matter of fact, a joint heir of the son of God himself, as it says in Romans chapter eight. Really? Really? Before I got saved, that was ridiculous. I'm like, come on, you can do better than that. And then all of a sudden, God came into my life and the Holy Spirit took that truth and it's become my life. Do you remember what happened to you? All on faith. It all happened by faith. We come to the gift of the spirits. We've talked about five truths that we have in here that will help us understand these. One, spiritual gifts are empowered by the Holy Spirit and given to those the Spirit desires. We see that in verse number 11. Two, spiritual gifts are given for the common good of the church and not for the edification of the individual. We see that in verse number 7. Instead of fearing spiritual gifts, 
We are commanded to seek and desire them. Verse 31 says, but earnestly desire the best or the greatest of these gifts. Number four, the gifts given to an individual Christian differ in number, magnitude, and intensity. We see that where it says to one is given, to one is given, to another is given, to another is given. We all have different gifts. And number five, the gifts of the Spirit are not used at the desire or whim of the recipient of that gift. It's a gift empowered by the Holy Spirit given for His purpose. If I have the gift of healing, for example, I can't go out and do that anytime I want. If so, we would find one man with the gift of healing could clear out the Mayo Clinic. True? That didn't even happen in Paul's day. That didn't happen in Jesus' day. The fact is it didn't work that way. They are used in the sovereignty of God. Now, you either believe this or we don't. We've already talked about the first two gifts, and now we're in this second grouping here that are the ones that cause us most problems. We've talked about faith. We've talked about gifts of healing. We're going to talk about working in miracles a little bit today. The first one, the gift of faith. Faith, again, means, to, means a firm persuasion, trust, conviction, belief in truth, or having been given the ability to believe. Some people are given faith to believe things other people can't. George Mueller was given that gift. Corrie Boone was given that gift. And it's, it's amazing that in this grouping of gift, that's the first prerequisite, to have faith that whatever God says I believe, no matter what my senses tell me. Talked about this earlier. What is the gift of faith in 1 Corinthians 12? It's really simple. This is the kind of faith that trusts in God's Word and His promises. Well, I, 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 I trust that. It's a kind of faith that God's people have in God's Word that causes us to commit ourselves to the promises of God, even though we don't see them or we haven't experienced them. It means if God said it, I believed it, that settles it. True? The reality is if God says it, it doesn't really matter whether I believe it or not, it's still settled. Faith allows me to believe that. We are believing the promises of God, being assured by the promises of God, and rejoicing in the promises of God, including these. That's what the gift of faith is. Do you have that gift? Do you believe what God's Word says, no matter what you experience? If so, you're going to soar spiritually. If not, you're always going to be hedging your bet. Well, I kind of believe the stuff that I can accept, but the things I, I can't accept, I'm going to kind of manage myself. You know, I believe that, that God's will for me is, to, is to, you know, to find somebody and get married. But I don't believe God's going to bring that person to me, so I'm going to go out and date 747 people until I find the one I like. I mean, our culture's built on stuff like that. We have faith. We have the gift of healings. That's what we talked about last week. The word for healings is iamah. EMI, a healing or cure, the result of the process of healing. It is not the word iamata, which means something totally different, which would be a certain drug for healing, but only gifts or abilities to provide the means of various healing in His divine providence, whether they be with or without medicine. In other words, where it talks about gifts of healings, we're not talking about somebody who has an aptitude for medicine, and you go to a doctor and you have diabetes, so he prescribes to you insulin. That's that's not the gift of healings we're talking about here. That would be iamata. We're not talking about that. We're talking about iamata, which is a healing or cure in the process of healing that has a supernatural base. And we went through a bunch of verses to try to show that a couple weeks ago. And now we're 
working of miracles. Now watch this. It says, to another, the working of miracles. To another, this is alos, of course, is to another of the same kind, the same kind of a person that has the gift of healing, the same kind of person that uh, has faith, the same kind of person that will have prophecy and discerning of spirits. To another of the same kind, the working, this is energema. If you'll notice it, you can almost see the word energy in there, can't you? This is energema. Energema means effective operation. It is only used in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and it means the result of the energy of God in the believer. It is the result energized by God's grace. It is God with His supernatural energy, with His supernatural power and His grace, working through the believer by the Holy Spirit who resides in you, doing something that is powerful, doing something that is life-altering and life-changing. To another, the working of miracles. And this is the word dunamis. And it's the word that we have power, that we get power from. And it's, it's the word we get dynamite from. It talks about explosive power, uh, achieving power. It talks about exceptional power. And it is often used in Scripture for mighty deeds. It's used for two ways. It's used for God's explosive power where he just speaks the word and it comes into existence. And it's also used for him doing mighty deeds and mighty signs and wonders through the people by that same power. Now, what this verse says, it says, to another faith by the same spirit, to another gift of healings by the same spirit, to another the uh, energema, the working, the effective operation, the results of the energy of God working in a believer to do miracles, to do dudamas, to do mighty deeds for God's glory. Oh gosh, the only people I know that claim to have that gift are these charlatans that run these huge crusades and do these fake kind of deals where they slay people in the spirit by whipping their coat around and all that crazy stuff. So obviously, because other people have abused this and people have followed them because of their ignorance, obviously it can't be true. But the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation is filled with miracles, is it not? And if you'll go through and you'll look at all those miracles, you will find the vast majority of them occur through an individual, by the agency of an individual. Somebody, uh, somebody dies, and the miracle is they're going to raise them back to, to life. It's never that they're just dead on the street by themselves or in the desert all by themselves, and all of a sudden the Shekinah glory comes upon them and they raise to life. They come back into the city and go, hey, I was dead, and God, all alone so nobody could see, raised me back to life. Never happens that way. Instead, what happens is, is somebody dies and Paul comes and prays over them or Elijah comes and prays over them or something happens. Jesus touches a casket or, 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 or grabs a little girl by the hand and says, I say to you, arise. There's always a human agency involved where God is working his miracle power through somebody else. Do you realize that some of you can have the same gift if his word is true and you either don't know it or you're afraid to even find out. Because what if I fail? Okay. What if you fail? If you succeed, you don't get the glory, right? So why would you think if you fail, you get the blame? And that keeps us hamstrung when it comes to operating in the gifts God has given us. To another, the working of miracles. Back to the point. In order for you to believe this and function in these gifts, you have to have faith. You have to believe that this is true and this is what God wants for his church, of which you're a member. Irrespective 
of what we've experienced. Now, here's our problem. This is the church's problem. This is what you're taught in seminary. This is what is preached from most of the pulpits from America today, and I'll tell you why in just a few minutes. This is what I have preached for years until God challenged my faith with it. And here's why. There's these questions that I just can't seem to answer. Here's one. If the gifts are for today, then why haven't we seen them in operation in our church or in most of church history? If it is real, then then why do we not see this happening in the first and second century or during the Reformation period over the last several hundred years? I mean, well, why have I grown up in a church and never seen these things happen? And the only churches that it does happen with, a charismatic Pentecostal church, there, there always seems to be some sort of, they don't seem verifiable to me. They're not convincing enough. So therefore, since they haven't happened or I haven't seen them happen, I'm concluding that they must not be real. This is my first line of defense with the Lord. And his response is this. So let me see if I understand this, Steve, that you don't believe because you haven't seen the gifts. Exactly. Well, if you did see the gifts, would you believe? I'd have to. If I went to Haiti or went somewhere else and I saw some uh, little kid raised from the dead or something of that nature, I would have to believe. Oh, so where's faith in any of this, Steve? It's the opposite of faith. You're not walking by faith, you're walking by sight. My word says they're real, but you're saying you're only going to believe if you see them. And so if you don't see them, that you're not going to believe. But if you do see them, you will believe there's zero faith in any of that. True? I find myself guilty of, ah, you're right, Lord. You're right. Well, Lord, help my unbelief. I either accept it or I don't accept it. God, well, what about Johnny Erickson Tata? I mean, what about her? I mean... 60 years ago or 50 years ago, she jumped off a pier in New England and she broke her neck at the age 17. And, and I saw the Billy Graham movie and I followed her ministry all these years. And, and, and she prayed and she had faith healers pray. And if anybody wanted a healing, it was her. And all this time she prayed and all these people gathered around here and churches gathered around. I even prayed for her. And the fact is she wasn't healed. What about her, God? His response is this, why do you think every time someone prays for healing, my answer is always yes. Do you remember Steve seeing her on stage 20 years ago where she praised the Lord for her brokenness? She says, if it was, if, I, if God had healed me when I asked him to at 17, I wouldn't be sitting before thousands and thousands of people talking about the grace of God. It's sometimes, Steve, I bring glory to myself by not healing. Okay, all right. Yeah, but, but what about what they taught me in seminary about Paul seeming to, to lose his gift? Well, what do you mean? Well, you know, he had this gift of healing, obviously, because these people got healed, and even aprons were brought from him, and people got healed, and guy fell off the second-story uh, window, Eutychus, and he came, and he, he healed him. And then all of a sudden, we see Paul leaving somebody sick in Miletus and not able to heal Timothy. So they teach you in seminary that he obviously must have lost his gift of healing because the gift of healing was fading out. What about that? And, and, and what about the whole deal about the canon of Scripture, where once the Bible got complete, then there was really no need for men's message to be authenticated by signs and wonders. I mean, I mean, now our Bible is complete, and so maybe that means there's, there's no more healings. I mean, these are all the arguments they give you at seminary, and the Lord says, those are deductions. 
That's man's knowledge placed on his word. Steve, where does it say in Scripture that the gifts I give are revocable? Matter of fact, I think I remember saying that my gifts and my calling are irrevocable. Why would I... Well, he basically said, if you were me, would you tell the people that are going to follow after the book of Acts, show them how incredible it is with all these healings and miracles, and then say, but you can't have that. Yet your life is going to be greater because I go to the Father and Holy Spirit. I mean, would you do that? No, nobody would do that. That's like, that's like having the guy that lost 100 pounds on his diet product sell it to you and tell you you'll never lose more than 30. Why? If you lost 100, why can't I lose 100? I'm, I'm like not motivated anymore. But we do that when it comes to spiritual. Those are deductions. Every single argument that I was taught, that you've been taught, that talk about the cessation of the gifts are all based on deductions, based on experience or deducing something for Scripture that is not stated at all. And sometimes we argue from silence. Well, we haven't seen these gifts, and so therefore they must not exist. Well, actually, the gifts do exist. We just don't see them in the West, and I'm going to give you a couple examples of that, because we've already mentally checked out. We've already determined that if I can't conceive it in my mind, it doesn't exist. And again, Steve, where's faith in any of this? I mean, if it's all based on faith, do you not trust me at my word? Do you not believe what I say? Is my word not sufficient for you? Or do you have to walk by sight and only believe if you see? And then, of course, there's some of the questions we don't like to ask ourselves, which is some of the ones I've been asking myself recently. And here's one of them. The 1 Corinthians chapter 13 passage, right after listing about how great love is. Love doesn't fail, and love doesn't do this, and all that kind of stuff. And at the very end, it says, love never fails. Okay, but whether there are prophecies, well, that, that, that's a gift. They will fail. Whether there are tongues, oh, that's another gift. They will cease. Whether there is knowledge, well, that's a gift from this passage. It will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy, well, that's a gift in part. So how long will we know in part, and how long will we experience and utilize these gifts in part? For how long will that last? But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part, the gifts, will be done away. Well, what is perfect? Some people say it's this Bible. And once we got the perfect Bible together on the turn of the, the century, this is what they teach you in seminary, that obviously these gifts had to be done away with. Other people believe that the perfect is Christ. And we find out that that happens in the very next verse. This is 1 Corinthians 13, 9, and 10. Here's verse 11 and 12. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. What is the perfect? For we see in a mirror dimly now. But then, when the perfect comes, face to face. Who do we see face to face when he comes? Christ. And now I know in part, but then, when the perfect comes, I shall know just as I am known. I'm never going to know just as I am known because the canon was complete. That happens when Christ comes. In this very passage, in 1 Corinthians 13, it shows you, and theologians that believe in cessationism will, will concede to this, that these gifts will exist until Christ returns. 
There's no longer for us to have those gifts manifesting the, the Holy Spirit part of the Godhead when Christ himself comes and all eyes turn towards him. True? Ah, for, that one makes me feel uncomfortable. I don't like to ask that question. Well, how about this one? Why does Jesus heal? Well, if you'll go through the scriptures, you'll find that he heals for two reasons. One is because he is asked to heal, and the other one because he wants to. There's no other reason. He either asked him or he has compassion. Ask or compassion. Probably does the same thing today. Sometimes he heals because he has compassion. Sometimes people don't get healed because they never ask, because they don't believe. I mean, he starts his whole ministry off like this. Matthew chapter 4, before the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Why? Because he wanted to, because he had compassion. Then his fame went through all Syria, and now they're asking. And they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. In this passage, we see the, the two reasons why. One is he has compassion. One is because they asked. They bring them to Jesus. Can you heal these people? I want you to turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 8. I want to show you something here. This is how the Christian life is laid out for us in the Gospels. This is the model that Jesus left for us. We have this in Matthew chapter 4, 5, 6, and 7 deal with the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is now over. We're now in Matthew chapter 8, and the first thing that happens is a healing. Matthew chapter 8, verse 1. And when he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, a leper came and worshipped him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus healed because he was asked. Verse 5 through 13. And when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. Jesus healed because people asked. Verse 14. Now, when Jesus had come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother lying sick with a fever. So he touched her and the fever left her and she arose and served him. Matthew says that Jesus saw a need, had compassion and healed. This account in Mark says that they asked him to heal her. The reality, both of them are the same reason. Jesus heals for one of two reasons. Matthew chapter 8, verse 28. When he had come to the other side, to the country of the Gazarenes, he was met to him two demon-possessed men who were totally out of their mind. And Jesus saw the, the need that was there. He told the demons that were in him to go into a herd of swine, and they did. Jesus healed because he saw a need and had compassion. Matthew chapter 9, verse 1 through 8. So he got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own sin. He then, behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said, Son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven, and then heals him physically. Why? Because the people asked. They brought him to Jesus. Chapter 9, verse 18. And when he spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler came and worshipped him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hands on her, and she will live. And so Jesus rose and followed him, and so did his disciples. He, the ruler asked, 
and the healing took place. And in the middle of this, verse 20, we've got a woman who had an issue of flow of an issue of blood for 12 years, came up behind him and says, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. She asked. We see in this one account, he, he goes for compassion and he heals because someone approached him. And this is just two chapters in Matthew. Matthew chapter 9, verse 27. And when Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. Do you believe I'm able to do this? Yes, he touched their eyes, and they were healed because they asked. Matthew 9, 32. And when they went out, behold, they brought to him a man, mute and demon-possessed. And when the demon was cast out, the mute spoke. They brought to him, the people asked. A few verses later, verse 35, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the kingdom, gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitude, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep, having no shepherd. Just in these first two Chapters, when Jesus begins his ministry, he heals because people ask, they have the faith to ask, or sometimes he heals just because he has compassion. The church today, I don't know if we even have the faith to ask, because we don't believe he does this stuff anymore. And after doing this for two chapters, look what he does in John, I mean, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. And when he had called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of diseases. Why? You've seen what I have done. You need to practice what's going to happen when I am gone, when the Holy Spirit comes to you and gives you the same gifts that he promises to give to all believers who believe in him, including the church today. He sends them out as interns for on-the-job training. Gave them power to unclean spirits, to cast them out, to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of diseases. Which brings us back to questions that we don't like. Lord, I believe that you gave that power to the 12. And then I believe that you gave that power to a few of the people kind of attached to the 12 that, that you know, kind of like these, these special assistants that you have, like Barnabas and like Philip and maybe like Stephen, and even Paul. But I don't believe that you gave that power to anybody else. And then we see this passage in the book of Mark. Now John answered him saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name. What? And we forbade him because he does not follow us. What? There's somebody who's not even part of the 12? There's somebody that the 12 doesn't even know? There's somebody else out there in the name of Jesus Christ casting out demons. And Jesus doesn't say, I didn't give that gift to that person. Why in the world are they doing that? We need to go call down fire from heaven and burn them up, James and John. It's not what he said at all. He says, do not forbid him. For no one works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. He's not talking about the 12 here. For he who is not against me is on our side. Why would Mark put that in here? Well, number one, because it really happened. And number two, because the Holy Spirit prompted him to. And number three, to show us that these gifts are not just confined to a select group of people. They belong to the church, which means by definition, they belong to you and me. If you have faith to believe. Other questions we don't like. 
And um, we'll turn to Acts chapter 4. Let me just show you this. I'm going to draw this to a close. The early church has begun. Peter and John are being chastised and being punished. They come back to the church and they... uh, they realize that the rulers told them not to preach or teach in the name of Jesus Christ. They're going to do it anyway. And so they offer up this prayer to Christ. And I, I, I often wonder if this is the kind of prayer that you and I as the church are going to offer up when persecution comes our way. And here's what they said. Now, Lord, look at their threats and grant your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. That's OK. We'll pray for that. God, give us Give us boldness to speak the word against governmental authorities or whatever that's going to take our freedom away or or persecute the church or whatever it is. But they add something. Lord, included in this boldness is by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name, may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. When have you ever been in a church that they prayed for that? Lord, would you please give our attorneys wisdom to file counterclaims to the suits that are brought against us? Lord, would you let the jury of his peers give an acquittal for our pastor friend who's in prison? Lord, would you, would you work out something and bring these missionaries home that are languishing in prison right now? When, when does a church ever pray like this? Lord, would you let them speak the word of God with boldness? And would you let them exercise the spiritual gifts that you've given the church, including them, to heal and and to work miracles and mighty signs in such a way that the people will know that a man of God is in their midst? And so when they had prayed, the place that they were assembled together was shaken, and they all were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. All right, the first part of this prayer was answered. And then I want you to turn to chapter 5. The first 11 verses deal with Ananias and Sapphira. Chapter chapter 5, verse 12, is the second part of this that was answered. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. So they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch, yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And the believers were increasingly added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought... Again, they're asking. They brought the sick out into the street and laid them on beds that at least a shadow of Peter might pass, might fall on some of them. And there's multitudes that gathered from the rounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all, A-L-L, healed. <sighs> Makes us feel uncomfortable, doesn't it? But what's the point? The point is, for in order for you to function in your gifts, you have to believe you actually have them and that God wants to use them in your life for the edification of his church. If your faith cannot grow to the point that you trust God for even these words, then nothing's going to happen. Nothing's going to happen. You're going to limp along like the church has been limping along towards the kingdom, knowing things will be greater in the great by and by, but but we really don't expect to see God's power expressed to us here. But if we could just see one miracle, one miracle, we say, we would believe. Wouldn't you? I would believe. So... I've gone and I've searched for miracles, and I've been looking at thousands of them out there on the Internet, but I don't want a miracle like 
somebody cured a cancer, they got this big lump. I, I was looking at some videos last night in Africa. Of, there was this woman that was absolutely, she had some disease where her, her skin was just peeling off her and her entire body was, it was horrible. And she went to a, a bunch of Christians got together and they prayed for her and she was healed. Some videos of some of this, before and after videos and stuff of that nature. No, not convincing enough. Now I need something in America. I need something that, that, that we all can got to get a handle on. We need something verified by the Mayo Clinic and we need something verified physically. Because if I came to you and said, you know, I really had a terrible pain in my back. You know, I had some, I had acid reflux or I have a heart murmur and I would, Jesus healed me of my heart murmur. We'd all go, okay, but I can't see it. And if I can't see it, being Americans like we are, I'm really not going to believe it. So let me see something from a credible source that, that, that'll show me God still works this way. So I have a short video I'd like to show you. Robert, can you get those lights in the back? At an age when other children were enjoying life's innocent moments, Marlene Kleps had to face its cruelest tortures. Weighing less than two pounds at birth, she developed cerebral palsy, which left her crippled. In a public school, this wasn't easy. Not very many playmates, I mean, because what could you go do or, you know, who could you go spend the night with? This wasn't the only tragedy wrenching young Marlene. When she was a year old, her parents died in a motorcycle accident. She was reared by great-grandparents and later by foster parents. But at 12 years of age, when some friends brought her to a youth rally, she committed her life to God. I just thought that if I was born with cerebral palsy, I must be born with it because God created me that way. I didn't realize he wanted people healed. During her teenage years, Marlene suffered numerous spasms caused by muscular surgery. These attacks were sometimes so violent they left her attendants with broken bones. After one severe spasm, Marlene was left almost totally paralyzed. Her vision, along with the rest of her condition, grew progressively worse. As a last resort, in December of 1980, Marlene was taken from her home in Missouri to the world's finest hospital, the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. January 5th, 1981. Spasticity has progressed. Spasms infrequent, but can last for months. Still will not move her four extremities. March 25th, still has no voluntary finger movements. Marlene has been here for over two months. Finances from her estate are practically depleted at this Patient time. Patient will be discharged in approximately two weeks period of time unless there has been significant progress. She will be dismissed to a nursing home in Missouri. Being sent to a nursing home was Marlene's greatest fear. And as best I could talk, I just yelled at him, and I just said, God, stop. In other words, just get out of here. But he didn't. And I, you could just feel his love and his presence, and it came all around me, and it was really, really warm. And he showed me a vision that he was going to heal me. She pleaded with God and felt he told her, of all things, to have the nurse look in the yellow pages under churches the next morning. I started flipping through them. And um, it glowed off the page. It said, Open Bible, Scott Emerson, and a phone number. She started asking me lots of questions about what the church believed. Did we believe in healing? Do we pray for the sick? And she said, okay, you're the one. You can come see me. And I thought, I can come see you. So a skeptical Scott Emerson answered the call. He arrived at the hospital in a pinstripe suit. 
Marlene told him he looked identical to the man praying for her in the vision. Emerson then took Marlene to his church. She had to be strapped in because her body was jerking so wildly. Emerson had never had a miracle take place in his church. They gathered around me to pray, and he said, I don't know how to pray. But he asked God to heal me from the top of my head to the tips of my toes. And then they asked if I wanted to stand up on faith. So would you like to stand by faith? And immediately upon lifting her out of the chair, we began to feel uh, strength coming into her legs. And she took a hold of the back of the pew and she just left. And my feet hit the floor and I felt the floor for the first time in my life. Her knees and her toes pointed together. Everything was pointed in. But with each step that she took, they started to straighten out. But as her toes and her knees straightened out, she got stronger and stronger. She took a few steps on her own and then was literally running around the church. The Mayo doctors needed only to discharge Marlene to her home in Missouri. From the hospital records, you returned to the rehabilitation unit that evening walking, something you'd never done since your admission to the unit. And when I saw you back at the clinic some weeks later, you'd improved even more, and all signs of previous abnormality were gone. You were able to walk perfectly normal, and your eyesight had improved so much that you did not need to wear spectacles. We were all very thrilled and happy with the outcome of your condition. Marlene's life has been normal now for 15 years. She's attended Missouri Wesleyan College and traveled through the Midwest sharing her amazing story. I was in a desperate situation, and you know there was no place else to go but to Jesus Christ with my life, and um, here I am. You know, I, I'm healed. I'm normal. There's nothing that I can't do. I mean, I, that everyone else does. I've always believed in the power of God, and I've read the Bible stories, like the, the lame man that Peter and John said, in the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. And the Bible says a man went walking and leaping and praising God. We were seeing that happen, not something 2,000 years ago, but something that day. Do you believe it or not? Charlatan? Did this pastor guy decide that what he wanted to do was become a uh, pastor guy decided that he wanted to just do healing crusades everywhere and, and doesn't? I mean, I researched him. The lady, um, she went around the Midwest and she shared her story, but churches weren't interested in hearing what she had to say. And uh, there are hundreds of accounts like this in the United States that pastors don't invite him to come to the church. And I'll tell you why. Because they have the same fear that I had first time I watched this. I watched this and I said, wow, I should show that on Sunday. And then I heard this voice that says, yeah, but what are you going to do when Kathy asks you to pray for Stacy? I'd rather not even show it then because I don't want the disappointment to take place. And that's how pastors are. That's how we all are that we've already come to believe that God can't do things like that, or maybe we're going to do them wrong, or that we just take this passage of Scripture and chuck them right out the, out the door. If you need a healing, and you come to God or come to a pastor or something of that nature and ask for a healing, and the church gathers around and prays for your healing, and a healing takes place, God gets all the glory, right? If a healing doesn't take place, we blame one of three things. 
We say, first, we don't want to blame God. You know, so first thing we'll do is, is we'll blame ourselves. Well, maybe there's something wrong with me. Maybe, um, maybe I have unconfessed sin in my life. Maybe God doesn't love me as well as somebody else. Maybe, maybe whatever. But we feel uncomfortable blaming us. So then we have to turn around and try to find somebody else to blame. You know, it's not me. It's him. It's the pastor. It's maybe he said it wrong. Maybe he prayed wrong. Maybe there's something wrong with him. Maybe he doesn't you know, have the Holy Spirit living in him. Maybe God would have healed me, but there was something in the pastor that, that blocked that from coming. Or if we feel uncomfortable doing that, we blame his word. Well, maybe God's promises aren't true. Maybe, and it just becomes a, a big pit that we end up in. And so what we choose to do is just not to believe at all. One of the amazing things about this and I was looking up the pastor and, and, and her testimony and all that kind of stuff. And I mean, is she out making money doing this? Not at all. Not at all. She works at a flower shop, in case you're interested. And, and a website that she had up, like was done in the 20 years ago, it's horrible. And uh, I mean, it's, it's, this is not what you think it is. It's just a lady who got healed that would love to share a story, but nobody's interested. Nobody's interested because there's an implied after that. Well, if it happened here, it should happen here. And pastors and leaders, they don't want that pressure. So we just end up believing nothing's going to happen. And we act like a gaggle of geese and just praise God for the things he says happens. And then we walk out in our real life and nothing ever changes. And that's wrong. I mean, that's, that's, just, that's just wrong. And so what I'm asking you to do is I'm asking you to search your heart and I'm asking you to, to ask God to give you faith that we can see miracles take place in this church, that, that, that people will get, you know, sometimes God's answer is no, but unless we ask, it seems like it's almost always no. You know, that we're willing to ask and ask in faith and follow the prescription in Scripture that the elders of the church come, the whole body of the church comes and we anoint the person with oil and we lay hands on them and the prayer of faith is what heals the person. That's the hinge pin, the faith. Do you have faith? And so I'm asking you, let's not make this academic anymore. Let's make this real. Ask the Lord to increase your faith. Faith. Ask the Lord to give you faith so that we can see God manifesting His gifts, even the, the scary ones in our midst. Because I'm telling you, our lost world needs to see a mighty move of God. Wouldn't you agree? But I want to close by showing you one more little film clip, if I can. You will recognize this. It's from Facing the Giants. And I want you, and you probably never noticed this before, but in this fictional little film clip, you're going to find two things take place. One, the gift of prophecy and the gift of word of knowledge is exercised, and we probably missed that when we were watching this. And the other one is the fact that the, the statement that's going to be made in this film is exactly the same statement that applies to healing. And I'll show you in just a second. Robert? Mr. Bridges? Revelation chapter 3 says, We serve a God that opens doors that no one can shut, and He shuts doors that no one can open. He says, Behold, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know you have a little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Coach Taylor, the Lord is not through with you yet. You still have an open door here. 
And until the Lord moves you, you're to bloom right where you're planted. I just felt led to come and tell you that today. Mr. Bridges. You believe God told you to come tell me that? I do. I admit to you I have been struggling. But I've also been praying. I just don't see him at work here. Grant, I heard a story about two farmers who desperately needed rain. And both of them prayed for rain. But only one of them went out and prepared his fields to receive it. Which one do you think trusted God to send the rain? Well, the one who prepared his fields for it. Which one are you? God will send the rain when he's ready. You need to prepare your field to receive it. Remember that scene? First, never even noticed it before, was a... Uh, it's a gift of word of knowledge, gift of prophecy. Man came with a message from God and told him, you're not finished here. You're to bloom where you're planted. And then afterwards, he gave an incredibly powerful teaching, which says that uh, God will send the rain when he's ready. You need to prepare your fields to receive it. God will send his miracles, and he will send his healings, and he will send his gifts and the manifestation of his spirit for the benefit of all when he's ready. But you and I need to prepare our hearts through faith to receive it. Amen? I'm asking you, I'm begging you to spend some time with the Lord this week and prepare your hearts to see what he's going to do in our midst. Amen? Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word and your truth. And Thank you for the promises you've given us. And Lord, I, I ask your humble forgiveness for not believing these because I was taught by man something different. Lord, I, I ask your forgiveness for the years I've wasted not experiencing your manifestation in the ways that you wanted to do it in the churches I've been in and in this church. And Lord, I'm asking that that stops. I'm asking that you will well up faith in me and in my family and in my brothers and sisters here that we'll prepare our hearts through faith to receive whatever you want to give us. And we'll trust you with childlike faith and brokenness and openness to fulfill your promises. And we'll act on that faith, Lord. We'll prepare our fields. Lord, would you, would you let our lives just be more than prayers? Would you let our lives be just active, energized service to you? And Lord, we're ready to go and do anything you call us to do and anywhere you want to send us. And we'll thank you for using us in Jesus' name. Amen.